I'm going to invite you to stand as we read God's word together. Galatians chapter 3, verses 7 to 16. Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, Cursed be anyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does them shall live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, Cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. To give a human example, brothers, even with a man-made covenant, no one annuls it or adds to it once it has been ratified. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And I pray that it would find a home deep in our hearts this morning. That you would empower us all now by your Holy Spirit as we hear it. That we would understand it and that we would be transformed by it. Open our eyes, Lord, to see the wonderful things that are in your word. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. If you are with us for one of the first times, you may not know that we're in not quite the middle, but we're well along into a really big series that, that we've been working on since the, the beginning of September called You Are Here, Finding Your Place in the Biggest Story Ever Told. And in this series, we're exploring what I talked about there a little bit with the kids, that the Bible is one story that Jesus Christ is the main character of that story, and that we're a part of this story today. And, you know, it's been our theme statement, and I didn't really even realize till this week how those three kind of parts of that statement really describe well the three different sections of this series. Because right back September and October, we explored that first statement, how the Bible's one story. We saw how it all fits together, how the Bible, especially as we look through the Hebrew scriptures, is a series can be described in terms of storyline as a series of covenants that God made with his people. And those covenants all fit together, tie together, and point towards the one person who would come and would fulfill them all. 
And so now in November and now into December, we're digging into that second part of the statement, which is the fact that Jesus is the main character of this one story, how all of these covenants that God made with his people are pointing to him. They all fit together in Christ as the one who fulfills them all. And so today we're remembering God's covenant with Abraham and how Jesus fulfills that covenant as the promised offspring of Abraham. Now we first looked at God's covenant with Abraham back in October as we walked through that first part of the series and saw how Jesus, or saw, looked at God's covenant with Abraham. We saw that God's covenant with Abraham was the, really the next major step in the story of the Bible after Noah's flood. God called Abraham out of a place of chaos, right? The land of the, of the Chaldeans, the, the land of the Tower of Babel. They may have still been fresh from that experience. Abraham is a 75-year-old man whose name means exalted father, and he has no kids. And God calls him and says that he is going to make him a great nation. It's so rich with irony. That's how God works. God creates things out of nothing. And we saw that. The story of Abraham is a story of a new creation. Just as much out of nothing as it was in the very beginning. So God promised offspring to Abraham. God promised a land for those offspring to live in. And most significantly, God promised blessing to Abraham. He said, I will bless you and make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. That's Genesis 12, 2 and 3. So we saw back in October what a significant turning point this is in the story of the Bible, right? Because from, from the fall of Adam and Eve up until that point in the story, the story of, had been dominated by the experience of curse. God's curse on the earth, his, the curse on Cain, the curse of the flood, the curse on Ham and Canaan, the judgment of Babel. It was all, it was all one big downward spiral. And now God chooses a man out of the blue and says, I will bless you. This is the moment where the tide turns. The covenant with Abraham is the moment when the curse begins to be pushed back. When God begins his work of, of reconciling the world to himself, of, of repairing the damage that, that sin has caused. Now we also saw, again, a few weeks ago in October, how the covenant with Abraham shows God's heart for the nations. Right? God uses Abraham to create one, one special nation, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, you have the nation of Israel. But God's heart is for all the nations. That's what he says. In you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. And finally, one of the most important parts of the story of Abraham happens at the end, almost, of his story, after he'd been given his son, Isaac. And after years of, of Isaac's life, how God told him to sacrifice Isaac to himself. And God stopped him at the last moment. It was a test to prove Abraham's heart. And it was only after this point that God was as specific as he was in Genesis chapter 22. He said, I will surely bless you. I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you've obeyed my voice. Did you catch how specific that promise became? In your offspring. 
your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. There's a very subtle shift in grammar there, which is why some Bible translations miss this. And they'll say, your offspring shall possess the gate of their enemies. But, but the ESV translation is following careful reading of the Hebrew grammar there. It's talking about one person. And it's through this one person, this one specific offspring of Abraham, that this promise is going to be realized and the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. And so we believe that this offspring has come and we believe that his name is Jesus Christ. And we believe that through him, God's promises are all being fulfilled. And so that's what we're going to do in the rest of our time here this morning. We're going to see, we're going to look at two specific New Testament authors, Matthew and Paul. And we're going to see how they make their case for Jesus being the offspring of Abraham, how we should see him and believe in him in this way. We're going to see how they explain what Jesus has done and what Jesus is still doing to bring blessing to the nations, just like God promised. And then we're going to see what that means for us today. So we're going to start with Matthew. Matthew's easy to find. It's the first book in the New Testament. And Matthew opens up the very first verse. We've talked about this in the past. The very first verse of the very first chapter of the very first book of the New Testament, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. And right away, Matthew moves into a genealogy that traces the the human family line of Jesus all the way back to Abraham. So showing that Jesus is a legitimate offspring of Abraham. He really is one of Abraham's offsprings. But then in this genealogy, this has this come up a few times, right? We've talked about this, how we tend to skip over genealogies, but they're actually mega important. In this genealogy, Matthew does something totally unusual. Is Typically genealogies, they show the father, the father, the father. In this genealogy, Matthew mentions not one, but four women who were the mothers. That was very unusual. And here's the kicker. All four are Gentiles. In other words, they're not of the Hebrew people. So you see in verses three, verses five and six, he mentions Tamar, Rahab, Ruth, and Bathsheba, who as the wife of Uriah the Hittite was probably a Hittite, which was a Gentile. So this was not subtle to his first readers. This was obvious that Matthew is highlighting the relationship of Jesus to the Gentile nations, showing how there's a plan here for the whole world. So it continues in chapter two as we read about how three Gentile wise men, magi from the east, come to worship him. Pagan astrologers. Even as a young child, Jesus was receiving Worship from the nations. Jesus was extending his reach beyond the borders of Israel to the pagan nations. Matthew chapter 4, we're moving fast here, I know. Matthew chapter 4, right after his temptation in the wilderness. Where Matthew picks up is how Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee of the Gentiles. That's Matthew 4 verse 15. And at the end of that chapter, in verses 24 to 25, he highlights the fact that people were coming to Jesus from the Gentile nations, from Syria, right? Gentile country. And from Syria, which had been an enemy of Israel for so much in in the Old Testament. And from the region of the Decapolis, which was a Gentile region. And so think about it. It was to this mixed crowd, this crowd of Jews and Gentiles, that Jesus began 
to preach the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5. It was to this mixed crowd of Syrians and Romans that Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's so significant, the heart that Jesus had for the nations. And right after he finishes the Sermon on the Mount, one of the very next things we see is Jesus healing the servant of the Roman centurion, right? The, the occupying forces, right? The, the, the pagan army that, was, that had, was oppressing the people of Israel. And, and, and Jesus healed the servant of the Roman centurion. And it was about this Roman that Jesus said in Matthew 8, verses 10 to 12, he said, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from the east from east and west. And that's, that's a phrase that's talking about from the Gentile nations. Many will come from the east and west and recline at table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. While the sons of the kingdom, which is talking about the people around him, the, the Jewish people who didn't believe, will be thrown into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. So offensive to his readers that, wait a second, you're saying pagan Gentiles are going to be sitting and eating with Abraham, and I'm not because I don't believe in you? That's exactly what Jesus was saying. And we could go on. We could talk about the healings Jesus did for the Gentiles. We could talk about the time he spent in Gentile regions. It was in the Gentile city of Caesarea Philippi, not a, not a Jewish city, the Gentile city where Peter said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. We could, there's so much, but I hope you see it. I hope you see that Jesus very intentionally in his ministry on earth brought blessing to the Gentile nations, to all the nations of the earth within his reach. Christ's greatest act of blessing the nations though didn't happen in his life, it happened in his death. And so to hear that explained for us, we're going to turn over to Galatians chapter 3, which we just read together. Hear the Apostle Paul unpack for us why we should really clearly see Jesus as the, as the promised offspring of Abraham and, and how it is that through Jesus, blessing comes to the nations. So Galatians chapter 3. There's a few things we want to see here. We can't go verse by verse some, someday, but... What I want to highlight for us is just a few really important things. The first one is this. Paul identifies the blessing that God promised to Abraham. He says, in you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. What is that blessing that God was talking about? The apostle Paul identifies that blessing as the gospel. In verse 8, it's the good news of being justified by faith. Justified, justification by faith. It's a big word, but we need to know it. It's that truth that God counts us righteous, that God counts us to be in good standing with him, in right standing with him, by our faith in him, not by our works. And that's, that's the good news. That's, part, that's, that's, a, that's what it means when we tell people to believe in Jesus, right? It's, it's not just about having an not just about believing the right things. It's because through faith, we are justified. We have a right standing with God. And Paul's point in verse eight is that 
this is the gospel and this is the blessing that God promised to the nations and the scripture, verse eight, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, not by works, but by faith. He preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed, right? This is the point here. This is the blessing that God's talking about. It's the blessing of the gospel. The blessing of a right standing with God by faith. Acts chapter three gives us another example of, of, of one of the other apostles reasoning in this way. Very similar point. This is Acts chapter three, verse 25 to 26. This is Peter preaching. And he says to the Jewish audience, says, you are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. Repentance. You could say faith. That's how Jesus blesses us, is by turning us from our sin to, to place our faith in him. This is the blessing that God was speaking of, the blessing of repentance and justification, the blessing of the gospel. So the next question we could ask is, so how does, how does this work? How does the blessing of a right standing with God come to us when what we actually deserve is a curse for our sin? And the answer to that question is found in, in verses 13 and 14. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. We're back in Galatians 3, by the way. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree, so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. Right, Paul's point here is, is, I hope, an obvious one that we've seen multiple times, even in this series, that we deserve God's curse for our sin. And this is especially true of those that were relying on the law of Moses to justify themselves. But Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. And how that happened is that when he hung on the cross, he was cursed by God for our sin. He received God's curse for us. We were prepared for this though, weren't we? By God's covenant with Abraham. Do you remember Genesis chapter 15? Do you remember after God made that series of promises to Abraham? And then what did he do? He had Abraham take those three animals and cut them in half and lay their pieces. And then God's presence came and passed between the animal pieces. And we saw that this is a familiar ceremony for making a covenant in, in that part of the world. Except that what would typically happen if two parties were going to make a covenant, they would cut these animals in half and the two parties would walk beside each other between the pieces of the animals. And what they're saying is, if I break this covenant, let this happen to me. Let, may, may I be killed in this gruesome manner if I break my end of the covenant. That's what it meant. So you have the familiar ceremony, 
but the presence of God alone passes between the pieces. Abraham doesn't walk. And we saw back in October what this means is that God was taking upon himself the responsibility for his end of the covenant and for Abraham's end of the covenant. God was saying, I will die if I break the covenant, if I'm not faithful, and I will die if you, Abraham, are not perfectly faithful. And there's tension there in the story because how can God die? How how does that even work? Because we know Abraham wasn't perfectly faithful. We know his descendants weren't perfectly faithful. How can God die? Jesus made good on this promise when he went to the cross and his body was broken and his blood was shed for Abraham's sins. Right? This is what Romans 3.26 says. It talks about the death of Christ on the cross. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. Abraham did not receive the curse that his sins deserved. David did not receive the curse that his sins deserve. But Jesus did receive the curse that their sins deserved. Jesus suffered for their covenant breach. And he suffered for ours. And this is how the blessing of justification comes to us. Despite our sin, Jesus took our curse for us. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us so that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. How we need the help of the Lord to taste this. Because we've never lived under the the law of Moses and having no hope beyond that. We've never lived, most of us, under the fear of the curse of God. So in some ways we're at a disadvantage to know how good it is to know that someone else became our curse for us. So that through him we only get blessing. So what have we heard so far here from Paul? The blessing that God promised to Abraham is the gospel. And that blessing comes on account of the death of Jesus. So put two and two together. If it's through the death of Jesus, that blessing goes to the nations, then Jesus must be the offspring of Abraham who brings blessing to the nations. And that's exactly the point that Paul makes in verse 16. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. Clearest statement in the scriptures about this. There's one offspring of Abraham, and it's Jesus. And he brings blessing to the nations by dying on the cross for them, so that they can be justified by faith. That's how this works. That's what God was talking about when God said to Abraham, In your offspring shall all the nations of the earth will be blessed. That's what he was talking about was the cross of Jesus. This is what Revelation 5 verse 9 is talking about. As the heavenly choir praises Jesus and says, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. That's how this happens. That passage is describing the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, the blessing of salvation flowing to the nations through the death and resurrection of Jesus. 
but we haven't quite closed the loop, right? Have we? Because we've seen here that Jesus died for people from every nation so that they will be justified by faith. That's the promise that God gave to Abraham. There's a question, right? How do the nations receive that blessing? We know it's through faith. That, that's how they receive the blessing of salvation, is through faith, through believing. Well, and how are they to believe in him who they've never heard? Well, and how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? You see where this is going, right? I just read from Romans chapter 10. But I think you see where this is going. In order for the nations to be blessed in Jesus, they need to hear about him, which means people have to go tell them. And so with that thought firmly lodged in your mind, turn back to the very end of the Gospel of Matthew. The very end of the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 28. This is probably one of the most, if not the most important passage in scripture that explains for us what this means today. How God's promises to Abraham get fulfilled in our time. This takes place after the resurrection of Jesus as he's just about to ascend into heaven and he says this to his disciples all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Matthew 28, 18. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations. Do you hear that? All nations. In the original Greek, this is the exact same phrase. These are the exact same three words from the Greek translation of Genesis 22, 18. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Exact same phrase. All the nations of the earth will be blessed in you, Abraham. In your offspring, Abraham. And how does that happen? By the offspring of Abraham, standing on a mountainside and telling his disciples, go make disciples of all of those nations. Do you see it? Do you see it? Do you see how the story fits together? Do you see how the great commission, this command to go make disciples is the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham? The nations of the earth get blessed in Jesus, the offspring, when we go and tell them about Jesus and make disciples. And you know what that means? That means that the covenant with Abraham has not been fulfilled yet, completely. The covenant with Abraham is still a work in progress because there are still peoples, nations, languages, tribes where we haven't made any disciples yet. Right? You've heard me here talk before about unreached peoples. The Great Commission hasn't been finished yet. There's still peoples waiting to be blessed in the offspring of Abraham. And you know what? This is why there is a gap between the already and the not yet. And we talked about that a few weeks ago. Jesus came and he's coming again and we're in this weird spot in between where it's already but it's not yet. 
And you know what the name for this weird spot is that we're in? Mission. That's the reason for this time in redemptive history that we're in. Because Jesus, listen to this, Jesus entrusted the fulfillment of the Great Commission. Jesus entrusted the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham to us. And so that's our job, to get to work, to play our part in fulfilling this 4,000-year-old covenant. Now, there's a lot to say here, and much of it is going to need to wait till the new year. Because in the new year, we're going to be going more in depth on what does this mean for us. There's so much here. But I'm going to touch on just two points this morning. What do we do with this this morning? The first one is this. If we as a church are really going to play our part in fulfilling the promises to Abraham, which is another way of saying fulfilling the Great Commission, which is another way of saying fulfilling the reason why we're here, it's going to sound strong. We can't be content to be a church that just supports missionaries. We must strive together to be a church that sends missionaries to unreached peoples. I'm being very specific here. If that is the mission, then we must strive together to be a church that sends missionaries to unreached peoples. This is my vision and my dream. And I hope it's yours too. Our success as a church, our faithfulness as a church should not be measured in our seating capacity, but in our sending capacity. We have to embrace a culture of going. As a church, we have to embrace a culture of leaving for the sake of the gospel, of sending our best away from us to go bring Jesus to those who haven't heard. More on that in the new year, but that is the only conclusion that we can draw from God's covenant with Abraham and the Great Commission. Second point that I want to make for us this morning. If we as a church are going to play our part in fulfilling the promises to Abraham, which means fulfilling the Great Commission, then that means that we have to start by having a heart for the nations right here at home. And that means that among the people of God, we must have zero tolerance for attitudes of nationalism, prejudice, and racism. I'm a white Canadian. I grew up here in Western Canada, surrounded by mostly white people. And my experience tells me that there is a lot of racism in the Western white Canadian church. I'm just calling it like I see it this morning, church. 
Think about this in the context of immigration for a moment. Think about immigration. It's a big issue in the news. And I've heard Christians say things like, you know, we got to be careful of all these people coming over here from other countries, changing our way of life. It's one thing for a citizen of Canada to talk that way. But we are not primarily citizens of Canada. We are citizens of the kingdom of God. And that means we can't just think like the rest of the world thinks on these issues. We have no excuse. As citizens of the kingdom of God, we should have zero interest in preserving some perfect idea of a white Canada. We should have zero interest in protecting our Western way of living. Because Jesus Christ told us to lose our lives for his sake. How can we say that we're taking up our cross and following him and yet protecting some westernized idea of culture at the same time? It just doesn't fit. And so we should be welcoming people from other countries, whoever they are, no matter how radical in their religion they are, with open arms. Because the truth is that if more of us were more obedient to Jesus, we would have been going to them long before they were coming to us. Could it be that God is using immigration to keep his promise to Abraham in spite of the disobedience of so many in the Western church who have not gone? This is a hard word this morning, and I know that. But I think this is what God, in his word, is saying to us. Here's what's the most ironic thing of all, thinking still about immigration. If your skin is white... You're the children of immigrants. There were people here before us. And you'd better believe that our forefathers changed their way of living when they came here. And this just makes any hint of racial prejudice towards First Nations peoples that much more disgusting. As the people of God... We worship a God who from the very beginning has had a heart for all peoples. We have zero excuse for racism and we must have zero tolerance for it in our midst. And my experience is that the Canadian church has a long way to go on this file. But we serve the offspring of Abraham who came to bless the nations so what are we going to do about that? It means we can't be content with status quo. We can't be content to just hang out with people that look like us. Having Jesus' heart for the nations will mean doing uncomfortable things for the nations. There's no other way around it. So what should we do about this? What should you do about this? It starts with confession and repentance, right? We, we need to ask God for forgiveness. We need to ask God for a change of heart. Many of us might need to repent of prejudiced, supremacist attitudes of thinking we're better than other people because of the lineage we were born into or the color of our skin or the language we speak or the culture that we live in. We may need to repent of a lot. And then we may need to go do something about it. It's not actually all that hard. Here's a challenge for you, all of you, even if you're not... Have no struggle with any of this. This week, go talk to someone who's different than you. Visibly different than you. 
I had a, 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 a truly life-changing conversation several years ago. I was sitting in the park with Amy, and a guy from a different ethnicity than me plunked down on the park bench beside me. And as soon as he did that, a bunch of other people around us got up and left. And I didn't really notice until he said, hey, did you see what just happened? And he just started pouring out his heart to me about how hard it was for him to go through life having people avoid him, having people keep their distance from him. The shame that he felt everywhere he went as people would cross to the other side of the street to not walk past him. Totally opened my eyes. And since that night, I've made a point of intentionally not avoiding people who look different than me. So here's how it works. If I'm in the grocery store and there's two lanes open and one of, in one of those lanes is standing someone who looks different than me, I will intentionally pick that lane and I will not keep my distance. I will stand as close to them as I would to anybody else and I will do my best to be friendly and try to look them in the eye and say hi. Maybe chat about the weather. And you know what? I'm not doing anything special when I do that. Jesus did something special when he died for people from that nation. I'm not doing anything special to go out of my way to do what Jesus did all the time, which is just be who he was to whoever from whatever nation they were from, and even to intentionally, intentionally seek out those from other nations for the sake of the gospel. This should be normal for us, church, if we understand the heart of God for the nations and that we understand that we worship the offspring of the not-white Abraham. So we're going to pray here this morning to close. Then we're going to end by singing a song. It's December. We're going to sing Joy to the World. But don't just tune out. Think about these words. The song Joy to the World is about the covenant with Abraham. Joy to the world, the nations. The Lord has come. Let earth everywhere, not just white Canada, let earth receive her king. We're going to sing about the king who's come to make his blessings known far as the curse is found. Sing these words with the covenant of Abraham and the resurrection of Jesus ringing in your heart. And as we pray now and as we watch and as we sing, let's ask God to change our hearts and to give us a heart for the nations right here in Nippon and everywhere. Heavenly Father, We need you in these moments. Would you come? Jesus, would you help us to be like you, who reached out to people that were different than than you, who reached out to the nations? Would you help us, Jesus, to remember your death for the nations? Would you help us to remember your plan for the nations? Would you forgive us, Lord, for attitudes of suspicion and fear and prejudice feeling we're better than other people. Would you have mercy on us, Lord? Would you change us? And would you help us this week to actually go do something about it? Would you help us this week to cross to the other side of the street, to start the conversation, to begin to challenge the things in our heart that we feel? God, would you make Emmanuel Baptist Church a church for the nations here in Nippon? And across the world, Holy Spirit, would you come and do your work here, I pray. We need you. And now, Lord, would you bless Brock as he obeys you and follows you. And may you bless him richly with your grace in this experience. 